0: What if you could complete your MBA in just one year? Thanks to the College of Charleston School of Business, now you can. Their accelerated MBA program condenses a traditional two-year program into one rigorous year, ensuring you not only save a year of tuition and fees, but also re-enter the workforce quickly and graduate with critical business knowledge. U.S. News & World Report recognized the College of Charleston MBA as number one in the country for its job placement rate within three months of graduation. Learn more at mba.cfc.edu. Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Each Saturday morning at nine, successful business leaders and entrepreneurs from across the Lowcountry talk about what it takes to succeed in business and in life. Now your hosts of Beyond the Business, Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood.
1: And great Saturday morning Lowcountry, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Business, presented by the College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond... Ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. And we're here today, hopefully, to make an impact as well. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Cox, with the lovely and talented yet stomach is full after Thanksgiving. Leslie Haywood. Good morning, Leslie. <laughs>
2: I'm about five pounds heavier than I was last week.
1: <laughs> well, you you look the same to me, Leslie. You look the same to me. Beautiful as always. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So how are we doing?
1: Everything is wonderful. Happy holidays to everyone listening this morning. We appreciate you taking the time to tune to dial in, and maybe you're even binge listening this morning to our shows on Beyond the Business. Heard here on 94 3 simulcast on iHeartRadio, or you may be checking us out via certainly one of our uh, podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or our website at coastalwm.com.
2: Yeah. Or go to Facebook. We're on Facebook and continue the fun beyond Saturday mornings and check us out at beyond the business on our Facebook page and also at Twitter at
1: BTBCHS. So Leslie, uh, we had an amazing story last week. Uh, Marty Strong, we're going to talk about you for a minute. Marty, like you're not here, if that's okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, Marty Marty Strong, CEO and Chief Strategy Officer for LGS Management Group up in Virginia Beach. He's an author. He's a Navy SEAL. I mean, this guy's done it all. As he said, my life wasn't linear, and it sure wasn't based on his story last week. So. Um, Any big takeaways or something that just really stood out to you?
2: Well, I definitely love hearing about uh, people's journeys and how, uh, like he said, not linear it is. Because I often think back, you know, think about my kids who are kind of trying to figure out what they want to do. And just Marty's story was one of those where it... Life is going to take you on the path that you are supposed to be on. And sometimes you can't see that. And he went from, you know, the Navy SEAL and government contract work and now is an author for both fiction and nonfiction. And so I just can't wait to see how this story ends. But it is um, it definitely gives me gives me hope for the future generation who is walking around going, Mom, I don't know what to do with my life. Marty proved it's okay at 17 and a half what he was doing at 17 and a half is not anything what he's doing now and his his, you know his plate is full and I I just can't I can't wait to see how this ends so what about you Eric I know there was a lot of quotes and takeaways
1: there's a lot of nuggets in there but actually I'm going to switch gears a little bit on that and since we're in this amazing you know Thanksgiving weekend and just uh I want to say uh thank you to Marty and to all of our veterans for serving our country and giving us the opportunity uh as a Americans to have freedoms and to get to do radio shows like this and have dinners like we did with our family the other day. None of that is possible without the work that they do and did. So thank you, Marty, for your service and uh, certainly what you've done for our country. Thanks. Uh, so we're going to tune to dial to, again, sort of where we were transitioning last week. Um, again, you you said it that your life wasn't linear, and it certainly wasn't. Um, you know, you went through the SEALS program, you ended up actually being in the same industry as I am as an investment advisor. You spent seven years there, and then you made a move, I think, as we were kind of leaving last week, talking about um, to defense contracting. And so talk a little bit about that shift out of the investment advisory business and why and how you went into defense
3: contracting. Well, the uh, and thanks for having me back, by the way.
1: Yeah, it's, thanks for coming it's, back. It's, Usually, it's, Leslie runs people off, so we're appreciative.
3: It's, it's nice that I got the call. As I was waiting. Um, so the thing that, that pulled me out of the investment industry was nine eleven. I was in an office with a regional manager at uh, UBS. He had his television on. The sound was off. And somebody came into the room and said the first trade tower got hit. And as you probably are, are well aware of, a lot of the financial industry People swap around to different companies over time. So there were a lot of people in that UBS office that had either friends or had just been working in the trade towers with, some say, Shere Salim or somebody else. So there was a lot of uh, anxiety and then a lot of emotion when the second plane hit in that office in, you know, specifically. And when I turned and saw that second plane hit on that television set, I just looked back at the regional uh, VP and said, we're at war now. And he looked at me goes, what do you mean? I said, we're at war. And I said, I got to go, I got to get out of here. So I'm driving back about 20, 20, 30 minute drive. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? Trying to make people rich. What kind of a, po- what kind of a point is that? What kind of a cause is that? Because I felt guilty that I wasn't there to do my part. And I'm saying, you know, that's how seals are. That's how elite forces are in all the different services you want to contribute. You want to be a player. You want to be participating. You want to you want to be a part of the big cause. You want to do all these things, and it's it's just a part of your being, and you feel like you want to suit up. And I'm not the first person to use that term, and that's what I wanted to do. So by the time I got home, I who do I call? I'd been out for a couple of years, and I had uh, disability from a back injury from the uh, SEAL team. So uh, I found out after a couple of days, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get back in in any capacity. So that gnawed on me for a while. So eventually I sold my book of business about a year later, and I opened up a consulting practice specifically for counterterrorism, anti-terrorism consulting, because the United States government was looking for people with my kind of background to help them figure out how the bad guys were going to hit us. So all that was pretty much classified work. It was going in and trying to figure out how terrorists would would attack a particular target. I ended up working uh, in support of the 2004 Athens Olympics Uh, Worked on some other um, U.S. government facilities in the United States, essentially kind of storyboarding out what I thought the bad guys were doing, kind of back plan the timeline, and then give some insights on where they could intercept that progression of events uh, based on my assessment. So that led me into uh, working for a government contracting company that was growing rapidly, doing a lot of the same kind of work. Uh, it wasn't entrepreneurial by scale, but it was entre- entrepreneurial by the velocity of the growth of the company. And it was a great experience for me having had kind of classic business training to see what they actually were talking about in those classes and, and the stability and the structure that companies, larger companies need and smaller companies need to scale into that we didn't have. And we tried to do everything through a uh, grit, and, uh, working harder and doing 24 hour stints. And, and, and we were able to put it all together and grow rapidly. Eventually it was a billion dollar company by the time I left and I left and I ended up in a extremely entrepreneurial situation, joining a $6 million a year company that was uh, founded by a former seal who I actually put through seal training when I was an instructor, uh, midpoint of my career. But we never worked together in the SEAL team. So that's how I ended up getting some experience outside of investment uh, advisory work in a corporate environment, rapidly scaling, and then finding myself as a principal in a very small early stage growth company.
2: And so was that what was the what was the name of that company? Was that the, was that LGS?
3: Yeah, it was called Lynx Security at the time. OK. And one of the first things I did when I was brought on was uh, change the name. I convinced the, I convinced the founder. Uh, we, we, <laughs> well, tell us
2: that story.
3: Well, he, he was kind of a serial entrepreneur. He was a, a very well-known nationally recognized uh, combat martial arts expert. He had a, a martial arts Academy. Uh, he was sought after by the military, lots of different, I mean, the army used them on on boards and to review their programs but he thought he was going to be uh, starting an executive protection company. so he called it Link Security. He had actually been on uh, Steve Case's executive protection team for a year and a half, uh, protecting Steve Case, CEO, founder of AOL. he um he thought, well, that's a great business to get into. So he started his own company, called it Link Security, and realized that you there's a big difference between between getting a huge fortune fifty <laughs> contract with twenty five people providing security twenty four seven and the dollars associated with it and the margins and trying to do it from scratch. So uh, he started giving classes to the Navy on martial arts to help them protect themselves in certain situations overseas and also better handle a a struggle with a detainee, somebody like they were going to uh, detain, put handcuffs on and things like that. And a little bit of martial arts skill helps you control and manage that better. And then they invited him to bid on a larger contract. They had tactical training and shooting and other things. And ironically, because the seals now were in nine 11, we're all going to put all of us in the business called the sandbox and they weren't going to be on ships anymore. They weren't going to be out there supporting the fleet. So they weren't going to be boarding ships, but somebody had to, to search ships. So the Navy was going to use regular sailors, train them to board ships, to basically fill the gap that the SEALs had left when they went to Iraq and then to Afghanistan, and eventually to Iraq. And they still do that to this day. That was the contract that plus the martial arts component. And he won that. And that made him a government contractor and the company was called link security, but he was doing tactical training. So when I joined him, I looked at his website and I talked to him and I said, well, you've really kind of pigeonholed yourself with the word security and you don't do security so let's make it a little bit friendlier. So we called it Lynx Global Solutions, LGS, get it? And we changed the name, I guess, about six months after I joined. And we promptly won a security contract. True story. So uh, we basically moved that company along over the next four or five years. I was I started out as a um, director of operations. Then I became the um, COO. Then I became the president of COO. He went and focused on his martial arts business. And then the two of us, and I was an equity partner, the two of us, uh, decided to sell the, the business. We did a, a market process and we ended up selling it to the employees backed by a private equity firm out of Charlotte. And they, uh, the condition of that, of that underwriting for that employee owned, um, sale was I had to stay for three years as a CEO that was in 2015. So I said yes. Me and my uh, my partner, he's he lives four blocks away from me right now. Uh, he went off to focus on his martial arts school and, and flying. He's a, an accomplished uh, pilot, both uh, jets and, and propeller driven aircraft. And I started running the new employee owned entity, which is essentially the same company. Then I realized that with the global war on terror starting to wane, that we needed to figure out a way to, uh, pivot. And I convinced the board, which I now had a board because an employee owned company has to have a board by regulation. I decided to pivot into an acquisition to offset <clears throat> any risk that, you know, being the concentration risk on just the government and the federal government. And I bought a, uh, a one employee healthcare company that had business about a 25 mile radius of Richmond. And I'll pause there.
1: So along this journey, by the way, um, you also start moonlighting, we'll call it, although I think it was in the mornings. But uh, you start uh, writing and and becoming an author. Um, And even more recently, I think you have a book, as we mentioned last week, Getting Ready to Come Out on uh, business practices. So talk a little bit about uh, your role as an author and sort of what has gone into that from a thinking perspective.
3: Sure. So... A couple things. In uh, 2017, I uh, was diagnosed with kidney cancer and I had uh, that taken care of within two weeks because somebody dropped out of the surgery schedule. So I I had it all for (laughs) I had it for two weeks, essentially. Um, And, you know, that that makes you think about things. I thought I was pretty much impervious to everything except for bullets and bombs. And uh, and I'm in good shape. And then I read Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour Workweek within a couple months after that. And he talks about uh, living your bucket list, make your bucket list now while you're still healthy enough to execute, uh, take a spreadsheet, lay out everything you want to do, price it out as individual trips, save up the money, execute, knock them off. Don't wait until you're going to retire. Cause then you don't want to spend the money. Cause you're worried about the money and all that. And he was listing trips and, and travel. Well, I've been to over 45 con- countries, a lot of them multiple times. My bucket list isn't let's go someplace. My, my bucket list is, achieve a, a new skill. So I had speak Spanish fluently, play the guitar. Well, uh, learn to play the guitar and, and play it well and write a novel and write a, um, a nonfiction leadership book. And part of that Tim Ferriss book, the four hour work week also shows you how you can go through an inventory your seven, seven days and identify if you're wasting time. And he identifies what he thinks is a waste of time. For me, I was a, a news junkie. So every one of those uh, professions that I have discussed, you know, uh, up to this point with you guys, I didn't drop off my knowledge or my, my desire to maintain my, my knowledge of those professions. So I'm reading military geopolitical economics. You know, I'm, I'm I've got the economist. I'm on CNBC all the time. I'm not managing anybody's money, <laughs> you know? And so I realize I'm spending a huge amount of time with all this kind of residual legacy baggage, where I feel like I have to be on top of that game. And when I got done, I had two and a half hours in every day freed up. Well, my only real opening for my life is to do it early in the morning because I have a day job with lots of responsibilities. So I decided I'll get up every morning at five, five fifteen, start writing at five thirty and stop writing around six thirty. And I'll do that seven days a week before the sun comes up. And I started that in uh beginning of eighteen. And uh, I started uh, with a fiction book with a time travel book called the time warrior sagas. And it, it, they just kind of flowed. It took me about 90 to hundred days to, to write the first draft. And then I was off to the races. I was, one was being, being uh, edited and produced. And the second one was, I was rolling with the second one and I kept doing that until I got to the seventh novel and it was the beginning of 2020 and I thought, okay, well, maybe it's time to, uh, it was actually when COVID hit, maybe it was time to try to do the nonfiction book. So I did the nonfiction book as I was finishing out the seventh, excuse me, finishing out the eighth novel and kind of in parallel, all still between 5:15 ish in the morning and, and six 15, six 30. And, uh, and I would work out sometimes after that, if I could get the workout in. So I actually was checking off all the Marty boxes before eight o'clock in the morning. And everybody sees the production, the prolific, you know, writing and everything, but I'm just, I'm just following what Tim Ferriss said, you know, find the time and utilize the time in a productive manner to make yourself happy. So I was doing that. I was just following that, following that lead and be nimble was, uh, you know, the, the full title is how the, creative Navy SEAL mindset wins on the battlefield in business. It was encapsulating everything I learned in the SEAL teams about leading, leading people, leading myself, dealing with risk, dealing with, you know, failure and success, the psychology of all that. And everything I learned in uh, my time in the investment world and everything I learned up to that point in business, running businesses, managing businesses, trying to sell and grow and do business development related to those entities, and dealing with the leaders, subordinate leaders, executives that that report to me, and a lot of people that come to me for advice and coaching, et cetera. So I pick up a lot of extra insights from that. That's all baked in to the first book. The Can first you give us book.
2: a little a little a tease of something that you talk about in the book? A little preview, um, and then also, how do we how do we order it?
3: My, I guess my my biggest takeaway is I almost called it be humble instead of be nimble. And I think I may have touched on it in the the last show. Uh, intellectual humility to try to put everything behind you that is either positive or negative, so you start with a clean slate every day. I also encourage leaders to take twenty minutes every day, first thing in the day, and try to clear their mind of their to do list, their problem, the problems they're trying to solve. If you're anybody who's an entrepreneur, I don't care care what your scale is. I mean, you could you could be an entrepreneurial mindset and be in charge of a very large corporation you wake up either in the middle of the night or you wake up first thing in the morning and you've got a stack of challenges that you were working before you went to bed subconsciously or consciously. And that inhibits long-term thinking, visionary thinking. It inhibits open-minded understanding. Uh, It doesn't allow you to take in fresh, raw, um, adjacent or completely um, asymmetrical information and data and insights because you have to have an open mind to do all that. If you already are in problem solving mode, you're already trying to take data sets in your past history and knowledge and apply it. And you're already, you already got a a straw that you're looking through to try to solve the problem. So take 20 minutes, clear your mind. Doesn't have to be meditation? Just clear your mind and think bigger thoughts, longer range thoughts, at least, you know, a year out, 24 months is probably realistic. Envision what you should look like, your family, you professionally, financially, and then look at if you're in charge of a business or business division or department, what would you like it to look like two years from now? Because what you do is you get into a habit of at least once a day having a strategic session, a visionary, strategic, open-minded session. And after a while, it becomes a part of the habit of how you address challenges, even if they're real-time challenges. What, how does this apply to the long-term?
1: And for our listeners this morning, Marty, anybody would like to get that book? Where can they order it?
3: Uh, Marty strong, be com is my author website. There's a link there also to all my articles and there'll be information about the second business book and amazon.com. It's on sale right now. It has been since April and it goes live January 1st of
1: 2022. Awesome. well, you know, we've had a lot of folks over the eight years on here have written books, um, but you may be the first that's actually written uh, a nonfiction business book, and then at the same time novels over here. And so, talk about the the dichotomy. I mean, those are two completely different. Maybe they're not, uh, but they're two different worlds. Um, give us a little mindset into making that transition from the novel world to a business book. Sure.
3: So I, everybody writes uh, fiction differently. The way I write it, I start with a, a general idea of where I want to go, maybe one main character. Uh, sometimes I see the ending of the story, and then I have to kind of back plan how, the, how do we get to that ending. And sometimes I see the opening, almost like a, um, the opening scene of a movie, like in Gladiator or something. I see that in my mind. And then I'm thinking, okay, so what does that lead to? So it's not always the same. And I put the thoughts down on paper. I don't, I don't go too crazy because I found that if you try to overmanage it, and overscript it, uh, storyboard everything out. It just kills, you know, the muse. You you don't you don't see it the same way. So, what I do is I sit down and I write. And in that time frame, in the morning, probably no more than five to seven hundred words. But I see the movie in my mind. I see it playing out in my mind, and I'm basically trying to keep up with what I'm watching in my mind. Obviously, it's informed by what I just wrote. I'll read like the last paragraph or two from the day before, and then the the movie clicks into gear. And this is of course, after I've read written at least one book and gotten into a process, but it's not a clunky thing. It's not a difficult thing. And I don't say I have to do a thousand words. I get to a point where the movie starts to get kind of wonky and like, it's not, it doesn't have traction. And I stop. And I show up every day hungry to start again. And I, and I love the characters sometimes evolve. You know, if think of it this way, if you're, the main character walks into a building and has to interact with somebody who has all the answers to that particular city, knows where everything is, knows where every, every restaurant is, where to get anything. And that's important to what the character is going to do next. Well, you have to create the person they're going to interact with. And, and you didn't even think about that. You just thought, okay, well, how are they going to know all this stuff if they just showed up in the city? They have to meet somebody that acts as kind of their local, their local dude, right? <laughs> and so you, all of a sudden you create the character of a local dude. And yet, and it's a rich character and they're, they, they know everything about everything. And then you got to give a reason for that. It just kind of happens for me. Mm-hmm. So I can get it done in, in 80 to 90 days, first draft. And it, and it doesn't really, the storyline works out. Flip over to the, the nonfiction side. You, you have to deliver value. It's not just raw entertainment or it's not just, you know, fun for the author writing it. Who cares if they like it kind of a thing. And you have to decide, is it about you? Is it about something, you know, is it about something you've observed? That's what's not about you. You know, you're kind of a third party uh, narrator. You also have to decide, do you want it to be an academic book? Do you want it to be a useful book? And the books I like, I like uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I like all of his books. There's a lot of kind of author narrative where you feel like you're having a conversation almost with the author and obviously with audible books and things like that, that, comes across when they're reading their own materials, but some authors in nonfiction are very conversational. And I thought, well, hell, I know how to do that. I mean, that's the fiction side. I can be my own narrator, and so that's how I found the voice for the business books. And that's the kind of feedback I'm getting in reviews, et cetera. One recently said, "I feel like I was sitting in the room having a, a one-on-one consultation with with uh, the author, and we'd known each other for years." And that was what I was aiming for.
1: That's awesome.
3: And that's what came out in that book and the the second book, too.
1: So before we run out of time, Leslie, you want to bring us home with a little lightning round?
2: Yeah, sure. I know. I love it. So this is Beyond the Business. People, you know, stories you don't. Let's get to know you a little bit more. What is the best movie of all time?
3: The original Spartacus, the original 300, 1957,
2: 58. (laughs) What is a hidden talent that some pe- most people don't know that you have?
3: I can sing. <laughs> All right. Like karaoke karaoke five-star type singing. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: was going to say, like, should we take a break in the show and give a moment for a, a, a tune? <laughs> <Belt
3: out? laughs>
2: On your perfect day off, where would you be?
3: I'd probably be writing. Be, oh. right, probably be writing right here where I am, looking out at the sunshine and and, you know, Looking out at nature
2: and that bucket list. What is what is number one on there?
3: Now, I would now. really, I would really love to learn how to play the guitar. I've tried a couple of times, and I'd I'd love to be able to just add that to my other skill.
2: <laughs> singing, right? Singing right. and playing guitar.
1: And then I can be ready. We have about hey, we have about twenty seconds. You want to grab the guitar and sing a little quick
3: song for us? <laughs> I own a guitar, and it's sitting in a closet. Yeah.
1: Well, we we also know that being on. Beyond the Business was one of them, and we got to check that box today. So Uh thank you, my friend, for uh, joining us. Really appreciate your story. Incredible journey you've been on in your life. And again, thank you for your service to our country. Yeah,
3: and thanks for having me, guys. This has been great.
1: Uh, Awesome.
3: Marty Strong, again, CEO, Chief Strategy Officer for
1: LGS Management Group out of Virginia Beach, Virginia, as well as author. Uh, Another great segment here on Beyond the Business presented by the College Charleston School of Business and Coastal Wealth Management. And until next Saturday morning…
0: Have a blessed week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work. They're ready to make an impact. Tune in next Saturday morning at 9 for Beyond the Business, hosted by Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood, and heard exclusively on News Radio 94.3 WSC. The College of Charleston School of Business is recognized among the top 30 colleges for studying business abroad by the Business Research Guide, With nine undergraduate majors, ten minors, and six concentration areas, an honors program in business, and master's programs in business and accountancy, the College of Charleston School of Business has more than 3,000 students enrolled. Their students are ready to work, and they're ready to make an impact. For more info, visit sb.cfc.edu.